Welcome to the second installment of season two of Alan Overy's APAC Corporate Trust and Agency Team Series Trust Us. Today, I am your co-host, Holly Hart, and I am delighted to be sharing hosting duties with my colleague, Louisa Ingham. Hello, Louisa. Hi, Holly. Thanks for having me. So, what will we be talking about today? Well, first up, I will be talking to Tim Beach, head of our APAC Corporate Trust and Agency Team, about the use of trustee discretion. We'll discuss the ability of a trustee to use discretion, circumstances in which it should be used, and how it should go about doing so. Then you and I are going to chat about Keepwell bonds. We'll talk about the basic structure of the Keepwells, how they differ from a guarantee, recent developments in PRC onshore restructurings, and the viability of Keepwells as a credit enhancement feature going forward. Yes, that is absolutely correct. So on that note, I will hand the hosting reins straight to you, and I look forward to speaking with you shortly. Thanks, Holly. Hi, Tim. Thanks for joining us. Hi. So to start with, trustee discretion. What do we mean by it and how does a trustee know when it is exercising one? It's an excellent question. Um, it's one that often comes up. Uh, in short, any decision that a trustee has to make where it has a choice of answers is an exercise of discretion. Having said that, there is obviously a, a range of different types of discretion that we can have within that uh, within that, that 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 range. You might, for example, have a fairly minor discretion in approving a notice that an issuer wants to give to bondholders, all the way through to waiving an event of default. So the, the distinction between the different types of discretion doesn't affect whether they're discretions or not, but it might, of course, have an impact on whether the trustee has a full governance process around every discretion, whether some require a, a, a lighter touch, if you like. Right. So does the issue of trustee discretion arise on all bonds which have trustees? Which Not on all um, bonds. It, it's something that is common, is relevant for English law, Hong Kong law and Singapore law deals. Uh, New York law deals work somewhat differently. In those, the trustee, uh, where it's asked to do something which isn't expressly permitted in the indenture, it's always going to be entitled to be given an opinion of counsel and an officer's certificate from the issuer, which will state that the action in question is something that's permitted by the indenture. And in those circumstances where the trustee receives that documentation in a satisfactory form, obviously, the trustee is able to uh, proceed in reliance on that documentation without having itself to form an independent decision on the merits of the approach or the action in question. I see. Um, what sort of trustee discretions are most common? The two most common discretions that we see in standard bonds um, fall into probably two main categories. The first one is modifications and waivers. So circumstances where an issuer wants to make a waiver, uh, sorry, wants to make a modification of um, the terms of some bonds in a way that it's not permitted to do so without consent from either the bondholders or the trustee. And the trustee is typically given limited scope to agree to certain types of modification without having to get bondholder consent. And the other part of that bucket is, is the waiver. So if the issuer uh, has breached or might breach one of its obligations under the terms of the bonds, trustees similarly have limited powers to agree to waive breaches, again, without holder consent. Obviously, in those situations, anything that's more serious will have to go out to the bondholders for an express approval, but up to a certain bar, the trustee is allowed to agree it. The second bucket 
um, it, it is the more sort of serious bucket, if you like, in the sense that, that it, it's when something has gone wrong significantly. So the trustee will have the discretion to uh, accelerate the bonds if, the, if an event of default has occurred. And it will also always have the discretion to actually go further and take enforcement action in respect to the bonds. Although in practice, um, the, the acceleration and enforcement options are likely to be used less in practice by, by trustees, because often trustees will want those fundamental decisions to be made by bondholders wherever possible. Just talking a little bit about how the trustee exercises those discretions, the underlying legal position is that the trustee has to act at all times in the interests of the bondholders. In other words, it has to look for some positive benefit to the discretion that's being proposed. Unless the terms of the trustee provide that the trustee can exercise that discretion if the thing in question is not materially prejudicial to the interests of the bondholders. And that's typically what we see in our transaction documentation for bonds. And what that means in practice is that trustees can agree to the, 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 the modification or the waiver or the action if it's going to result in something that, that might be negative for holders, but in a way that is only trivial, that, that doesn't have a substantive negative effect on the interests of the bondholders. Right. And is there a specific process that, the tr that a trustee should be undertaking in order to make sure it's comfortable, it's exercised, it's exercise its discretion properly? It's not a process that is laid out as a matter of law, um, nor is it something that you'll see in the trust deed. But, but yes, you know, there is a, a three-step process I'd recommend that trustees should run through to make sure that they, they've exercised the discretion properly. The first is, and this is the, the very first thing you should do, is check what the power of the trustee is to exercise a discretion in the, the trustee that, that, that relates to the bonds. Does the trustee actually have the power to do the thing it's being asked to do? Because it's surprising how often actually an issuer might ask the trustee to exercise a discretion and actually it, it's not applicable. You know, the trustee doesn't have the power. So unless you can identify a specific power in the documents for the trustee to exercise a discretion, the answer is the trustee can't do it. So find the power and consider how the request that's been made of the trustee or the action that's being considered fits with the powers and check for any limitations on that power. For example, modifications, it would often be the case that trustees can't exercise modification discretionary powers if that would fall within one of a, a series of specified reserve matters or basic terms modification. So that's point one, check the power is there. Second point is, should the trustee exercise the power? And what I mean by that is, it's important to consider the nature of the modification or the waiver or the action and who might be prejudiced by it and, and, and why. And that requires the trustee to identify all relevant factors that, that relate to what it, it's considering doing and, um, and, and the impact that it, that might have on the bondholders. And also, of course, making sure that it, it, the trustee is not taking into account factors which are irrelevant. So, for example, you know, one of the common things is that trustees sometimes wonder if they ought to be taking into account the impact of uh, a particular modification on bond pricing in the secondary market. It, it's tempting to see why that might be relevant, but actually the interests of the holders relate to their ability to get paid under the terms of the documentation. 
the the pricing in the secondary market might show what the market thinks about the bondholders ability to get paid in full but it's not prejudice in and of itself and then finally how can the trustee protect itself if it does exercise the discretion so it's important to think through what documentation the trustee might require in order for it to act and this is a really really important part of the process because the trustee's documentation that it collects is effectively forming its defence in the event that there were to be any challenge uh, against it uh, later on. Often one of the key parts of that documentation is a certificate from the issuer which explains what's required and, and, and the power on which it's going to be made under and sets out the issuer's reasoning as to why that's fine. Um, so really important to, to think that through and think, you know, is that sufficient? Are there other types of documents or opinions or anything else that the trustee ought to receive in order to, to get comfortable? A couple of other points to note on the process side. It's very important to bear in mind that the trustee isn't entitled to adopt a blanket policy whereby it refuses to take a discretionary action unless it's first directed by the bondholders. The reason for that is that that would effectively negate the discretion that's given to the trustee in the documentation, and, and courts don't like that. Courts will look at professional trustees and say, if you have a discretion, it is your obligation, trustee, to consider the exercise of that discretion. So the trustee always has to go through that process itself. And it's also important to bear in mind when looking at that process of, of considering the exercise of discretion, that that might be a continuing obligation. So for example, in the context of enforcement action, the trustee might need to revisit its decision not to take enforcement action on an ongoing basis as circumstances change. In terms of the process that trustees generally follow, most corporate trustees, certainly in the bond world, will have a discretions committee uh, or, or at least a governance procedure that often involves a, a committee or a small number of senior trust officers or directors will consider all the exercises of discretion that the trustee has to, to consider. That's a good idea because that leads to consistency of decision making and a robust governance structure like that will also help to the extent that anyone does ever challenge the trustee further down the line. <clears throat> And then finally, um, coming to us, um, taking legal advice from experts uh, when a trustee is, is required to exercise discretion is also helpful from that point of view of demonstrating that the trustee's procedures are robust and that it's done everything in a reasonable fashion to come up with a, with, with a sensible decision. Great, thank you. Um, trustees are often very concerned about these exercises of discretion. What are the main risks to trustees of exercising it in an improper way? Yeah, you're right. I mean, it is something that often comes up, and understandably so, because fiduciary risk is a is a different kind of risk from from a lot of uh, you know agency type risks that, that that our clients face in their businesses. So I group them into three categories. The first is um, the result of um, legal actions from bondholders and, and subsequent financial loss. So that's where a bondholder says that in exercising a discretion either to do something or not do something, a trustee has caused them financial loss. And so the bondholder sues and, and is successfully awarded damages against the trustee. And I'll talk a little bit um, more about that in a moment. 
The second source of risk is damage to a relationship with an issuer. Um, you know, obviously, it is often issuers that ask trustees to exercise discretion, and saying no might not necessarily be, be popular, although that's not going to be something that results in financial risk. And then the third category is reputational risk, which is obviously very important to, to all of our clients. And that would come from if, for example, a court were to determine publicly that a trustee had exercised discretion wrongly, that it would it would obviously reflect badly on, on the trustee in those circumstances. It's very important, though, with all of this, to bear in mind that the trustee, certainly when it comes to the, 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 the chances of being successfully sued, the trustee doesn't have to be right when it's exercising a discretion. In other words, if it determines that something is not materially prejudicial to the interests of the bondholders, it doesn't have to be right in forming that conclusion. It only has to be reasonable in forming that conclusion. In other words, it has to be not negligent when, when exercising its discretion. And in practice, whilst you know, we, 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 we do see from time to time some objections or queries raised by bondholders, particularly when a trustee exercises discretion, there are very, very few examples of actual legal challenges brought against a bond trustee in relation to the exercise of discretion, and even fewer examples of any that are, that are actually successful. And I think that reflects the fact that trustees have very substantial protections in trust deeds um, it, that, that, that protect it in, in this um, process. But also, of course, that you know, our clients are professional trustees. They have robust processes in place for ensuring their decisions are, are, are properly considered. And so, frankly, they, they make good decisions generally. So we would always advise taking trustee discretions very seriously, but if they're properly considered and, and the, the risk associated you know, with them, I think, should be pretty well managed. Great, thank you. And sometimes a trustee will be challenged or pushed as to why it might or might not have exercised a particular discretion. Um, should or, you know, is a trustee entitled to give reasons to issuers or bondholders to explain its decision on a particular point, or is that not something that's required? Yeah, th this is a really important point and one that comes up quite a lot because obviously the temptation when an issuer or a trustee, uh, sorry, an issuer or a bondholder is querying an exercise of discretion, uh, either as to whether why the trustee hasn't done it or why the trustee has done it. The temptation is to explain, well, this is this is why I've come up with, with that as an answer. In short, though, in answer to your question, no, um, trustees should never give reasons for uh, either exercising or not exercising discretion. And the key English case that we get that principle from is, is called um, Re-Londonderry's Settlement from, from 1964. So it's, it's a long established principle. And the judges in that case took the view, and, and I, I can quote the wording that they used here, that nobody could be called upon to accept a trustee role which involved the exercise of discretion unless, in the absence of bad faith, he were not liable to have his motives or his reasons called in question either by the beneficiaries or the court. So what that is very clearly saying is the court recognises that as long as you're not acting in bad faith, your reasons are your own. In other words, the court will work out, you know, have you exercised your discretion in good faith? If you have, the court will not interfere with that. But they did go on and say, if trustees do give reasons, 
the soundness of their reasons can be considered by the court. So if you give reasons as a trustee, and this ends up in court, the trust, the court then is suddenly not considering only is it reasonable for the trustee to have formed this view, but actually was the trustee right? So inadvertently, the trustee itself lowers the bar for being successfully challenged. So really important uh, on, on that front, not to give reasons. You give decisions, you, you don't give the reasons for them. Great, thanks, Tim. That's That's been really interesting and I'm sure uh, very helpful to everyone listening. Thank Speak you very later. much. Thanks. Um, as always, to everyone on 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 this call, uh, a reminder that you're very welcome to contact any of our team to discuss this or any other topic of interest a bit further if you'd like to. Uh, moving on to our second topic for the day, uh, the Keepwell structure. Uh, inviting Holly to rejoin us. Hi, Holly. Thanks for thanks for coming back. Hello, Louisa. I am looking forward to being the recipient of the line of first <laughs> Yes, a nice change. Um, right. Well, over the last 12 months or so, there has been quite a bit in the media with respect to Keepwell bonds, uh, in particular their enforceability. Uh, to start with, I'm sure most of our clients are familiar with the general structure of Keepwells, but if you could give us a very brief overview of how they work, that would be a great start. Yes, of course. Um, the use of Keepwell deeds in bond transactions in particular is a popular, useful structure for PRC deals because unlike the giving of guarantees, for example, entering into a Keepwell arrangement does not require any onshore regulatory approval. In summary, the Keepwell structure is a credit enhancement alternative to guarantees. In the context of a bond offering, a Keepwell deed is an agreement between a Keepwell provider incorporated in the PRC and likely with significant onshore assets. The issuer and the trustee. A Keepwell deed typically includes certain undertakings given to the trustee for itself and on behalf of the bondholders. And that includes, but is not limited to, the following. Uh, firstly, that the Keepwell provider will maintain an ownership interest in the issuer. Secondly, that the Keepwell provider will ensure that the issuer's financial obligations will be met by causing the issuer to maintain sufficient liquidity and a consolidated net worth above a certain threshold. Um, or by making available sufficient funds to meet the issuer's payment obligations in full as they fall due. Uh, thirdly, if necessary, that the Keepwell provider will invest in the issuer, usually by a combination of equity investment or shareholders' loans subject to court payment regulatory authorizations and approval. Um, and finally, that the Keepwell provider provides a standby facility such that the Keepwell provider in the PRC would grant to the issuer that cross-border standby facility so that the issuer, being the offshore entity, would apply the proceeds received to fulfill its financial obligations to bondholders. Keepwell agreements in these cross-border structures are typically contained in the offshore documentation and are not governed by PRC law. Okay, great. Thank you. Um, there have been reports frequently, more recently, that this structure has failed to protect bondholders in certain circumstances, and therefore that they are a weak form of credit enhancement. In particular, we, I'm sure the, most of us, if not all of us, are aware of two very high-profile bond defaults, namely CEFC Shanghai and Peking University Founder Group. Can you please explain what happened there? Can I ever? <laughs> very close to my heart. Um, let's start with CEFC Shanghai. This relates to Keepwell notes that were the subject of a non-payment default. In mid-2018, an offshore investor filed a claim in Hong Kong against CEFC for breach of a Keepwell deed. 
because the key file deed itself was governed by Hong Kong law. This bond holder was successful in obtaining a default judgment in the Hong Kong courts. As CEFC reportedly did not make payment as a result of this judgment, the bondholder then applied to the Shanghai Financial Court for recognition and enforcement of the Hong Kong default judgment, pursuant to, and I'm going to get this correct, the arrangement on reciprocal recognition and enforcement of judgments between the PRC and Hong Kong. This arrangement enables Hong Kong judgments to be recognised in the mainland and the reverse if they meet specific requirements, which presumably this situation it did. In arguing against enforcement, counsel for CEFC reportedly argued that the Keepwell deed amounted to a guarantee and therefore should be subject to PRC regulation and not the enforcement of the Hong Kong courts. Uh, encouragingly, the Shanghai Financial Court rejected this premise correctly in our view as the point of the Keepwell arrangement is that it is distinct from a guarantee. Accordingly, in late 2020, the court recognised the Hong Kong judgment and payments to bondholders were enforced. This is certainly a positive development, despite how lengthy the process was. Peking founder, as those of us deeply embedded in it refer to it, is quite a different situation. Uh, I must say I can speak freely to this because all of this information is, is publicly available, uh, often through notices that we have dropped. <laughs> We've been acting to the trustee of 10 offshore series of bonds issued by three different uh, issuers, each apart in their own way of the Peking University Founder Group or PUFG. Um, as reported, five series had the benefit of a, a conventional straightforward guarantee. Another five series had the benefit of a Keepwell deed. All 10 series of bonds are, are now in default eventually by virtue of non-payment. Further, specifically in respect of the Keepwell series, the relevant Keepwell providers are in breach of the Keepwell deeds because they quite literally failed to keep the issue as well enough by keeping them in funds to meet their obligations. In early 2020, PUFG announced that it had been ordered by the Beijing First Intermediate People's Court to initiate an onshore reorganisation process. On behalf of the bondholders, the trustees submitted statements of claim in the reorganisation to the court appointed administrator. After a lengthy process, ultimately the claims in respect to the five guaranteed series were accepted into reorganisation, however the five Keepwell series were rejected by the administrators. Now, under PRC law, administrators in a court-ordered reorganisation have the right to determine what they will accept uh, as a debt in proceedings. In this instance, the administrators decided that the obligations owed under the Keepwell did not equate to the debt of the entities that were the subject of the reorganisation. In the view of the administrators, a guarantee is considered a primary obligation of a guarantor, and therefore the guaranteed series were legitimate debts owed by PUFG bondholders as creditors in, a, in the reorganisation. Conversely, keepers are not guarantees and the obligations of the keeper providers to keep the issuer entities in funds do not equate to the keeper bondholders being recognised as creditors with debts owed to them by PUFG. In our view, legally, this is the correct categorisation in the sense that keepers are not intended to be guarantees. Um, it's expressly stated in the documents that this is not a guarantee and it cannot be implied. They are an undertaking of the keeper provider to undertake certain actions to fund another party for the benefit of a third being the holders. The obligations do not constitute a debt owed to the trustee and the holders as beneficiaries of those undertakings. 
Great, thank you. Um, so it appears, to say the least, that there is some uncertainty still for investors. Mm-hmm. Um, on that basis, are Keepwells still a viable product? And secondly, is there anything else that trustees and or agents should be aware of? Well, despite everything I've just said to you, yes, they are. <laughs> Look, Keepwell arrangements do provide effective credit enhancements for the right credit. They were never intended to be a cure-all or a form of security, but they do add an additional avenue of reform. Um, from the trustee and the aiders perspective, provided that these are structured and drafted correctly for the right parties, they definitely have a place in the current market and will continue to do so. Great. Thanks, Holly. That, that's been really interesting. Uh, and it definitely sounds as though this topic is one which is uh, definitely constantly developing. And fortunately, our team is close to the proceedings, so we will keep watch. Thanks very much, Holly. Thanks so much, Louisa. Um, Well, that brings us to the end of today's session. Uh, whilst there is plenty more we could explore on each of these two topics, um, we hope that we've given you a good overview of both the use of trustee discretion and the developments regarding the use of keepwell structures. As always, questions, comments, and feedback are very warmly welcomed. Um, and please do share this episode as a podcast with your colleagues, encouraging them to reach out to if there's anything they would like us to address on future episodes so that we can bring that content and discussion to you. Um, Thank you all so much for listening, uh, and we look forward to speaking to you all again very soon.